Hello, it's Charlotte's sister, C. Farrell, host of Powered by Age, Canada's longest-running senior-led podcast that invites you to do what you love. This podcast is for you if you love writing or telling stories, if you love sharing poetry or doing interviews. This podcast is for you if you love working on ways to create age-friendly cities. This podcast is for you if you love learning how to tame technology and get more out of virtual events, if you love finding more ways to share your heritage or traditions. If you love any of these things, you can go beyond listening and join our weekly podcast group. Simply email pbaafc at gmail.com and put your name in the subject line. Powered by Age is sponsored by the Government of Canada, New Horizons Grant, the 411 Senior Center Society, and G&F Financial Group. Good morning and welcome to Powered by Age, Canada's longest-running senior-led podcast. Today, we are going to be hearing about some exciting research that was done by the Star Institute at Simon Fraser University, along with the 411 Senior Center, which is one of our sponsors. I'm Charlotte Farrell, your host, and I gratefully acknowledge that our podcast takes place on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh people. And... I will start with uh, asking Leslie and Ramona to introduce yourselves. Hey, I'm Leslie Hebert. I live in New Westminster, obviously retired. I still teach English as a second language online, and I also write short stories and poetry. Okay. Ramona? Hi, I'm Ramona Srinivasan. I'm a retired professor, Mumbai University, a newcomer to Canada. And I have just moved to Vancouver recently from Mississauga. Um, I really like being on Powered by Age because we discuss a wide variety of interesting and inspiring topics. Thank you. Yes, and another thing we do is periodically we have some of the podcasters with more than 44 people that have at different times of the other participated with us, but some lead a presentation on a topic. So uh, Dr. Ramona is going to be leading one on brain health. Leslie has led one on travel writing and gathering some other writers together. We look at what people are doing in the community post-retirement and invite them to be on our program. Today, our special guests are from the Star Institute. Uh, Tell us what that is, uh, Andrew. Introduce yourself. Okay, I, I, uh, thank you, uh, um, Charlotte. Uh, the The Star Institute is an institute at Simon Fraser University, of which I'm director, and uh, it's not the university of the Star Institute. And um, the Star Institute is there to uh, support the development and implementation of technologies to support the health and, um, and well-being of, uh, of seniors and people as they grow older. Um, so that's what the Star Institute is, is about. Uh, we have a relationship with seniors 411 uh, to work with them. And uh, maybe Hannah can talk about that uh, in a bit more depth. But we've been working with seniors 411 for a few years now to uh, develop this this agenda uh, around technology and aging. Given that we live in a in an increasingly digital world, that uh, that everybody needs to 
be able to participate fully in our in the digital world that we live in. So, uh, what do we need to do to help people to connect? And also, what do we need to do in terms of developing technologies that are more user friendly, more useful, uh, more affordable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that connects with one of the issues that a committee within the 411 Senior Center is working on, which is just collecting examples of digital divide issues, things that keep people from being able to participate in surveys or um, to take a virtual examination. So, uh, Hannah, uh, would you explain this wonderful way, the community-based research that you used? Yeah, hi, my name is Hannah, and I am a community-based researcher at the Star Institute and at 401 Senior Center. Um, I'm embedded at the 401 Senior Center to better understand the life, daily lives of seniors, uh, program staff, um, and volunteers at 401. to bet, I guess one of the biggest factors to better understand uh, some of the challenges and barriers that um, 411 is experiencing. And, um, and the biggest one so far is the digital divide and how COVID-19 has really exacerbated that issue. And it actually has increased the disparity and inequity among seniors uh, because we transition to a digital platform and many seniors are being left out. And um, and so part of my research, uh, part of why I'm there is to how do we make uh, information more accessible and more equitable, which is like a really big project and uh, it's never ending. Um, so um, uh, we did a, um, we're constantly putting out mini fires. Uh, first one was dealing with the vaccine card, um, the provincial vaccine card, and how the government has rolled that out, expecting that a lot of people have access to digital tools and digital technology and in- internet infrastructure, but uh, that's not necessarily true. Um, not just seniors, but there are a lot of low-income families that do not have internet uh, infrastructure or smartphones. Um, So a lot of um, also the information that's provided is not very transparent or very clear or used in simple language. So that's become an issue as well. And there's also information overload, uh, what is accurate information and what is misinformation and deciphering that has also become really challenging and has created a lot of fear and anxiety around that too. So um, we've heard the community concerns around the BC vaccine card Sorry, there's a big dump truck just passing by my back alley. Um, so we've we've been listening to community con- concerns, and we thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to capture what is happening and what are the local organizations doing on the ground to uh, reduce that gap that government isn't fulfilling and. So we 411 staff and the volunteers and the community members have worked together and the Star Institute, we all work together to create this, um, create the BC vaccine uh, pass, uh, 
BC vaccine card report, um, just to um, illustrate some of the emerging themes and issues that have come up. Um, we've put together um, key findings and also some of uh, some policy recommendations. So it's a really a community effort. Uh, it wasn't just uh, researchers coming up with these recommendations. It was, uh, or coming up with this uh, theme, uh, ish, uh, major themes. We worked together to collect, we collectively worked together to identify the emerging themes. Um, and we worked together to find out, uh, finding creative solutions to reduce the digital divide. But specifically one aspect of that was the BC vaccine card. Um, just, that's just the overall summary of the, um, what I've been doing. Uh, so now you call what you do the uh, a community-based model, a community. Describe how community-based model differs from the usual way seniors and others get involved in, in research. Yeah, I think Andrew is wanting to <laughs> scratch the thing on that. Okay. Uh, I, I'll start by comparing it to the usual model of, of research. So somebody such as myself, and this is the model that, um, yeah, probably I've, I've been involved in many years ago, uh, is where the researcher effectively parachutes into where the community that they're, uh, that they're interested in, collects data, and then disappears and nobody hears anything about it again. And the, they publish the results in a, uh, a, an academic journal somewhere and that, that's it. That, that was how research was, was designed. And indeed, there's, a, there's a, a kind of a school of thought where if you get too involved in the community that you're interested in as a researcher, then you actually contaminate that community in some way. With the, the, you know, the, those are words that I've used many, heard many, many times, right? So, so however, I kind of didn't like that approach right from the um, right right from the start, and a lot of my work has right from my early career was very much involved in working with. Um, organizations, whether they're service providers or advocacy groups or whatever, to use research in a way that has both the academic things that I'm interested in as a researcher, but also has direct value to the, um, to the organizations that I'm working with, so that we flow information back in a usable form, in a, in a, uh, an agile way that is in the time scale of the organization. Whereas, you know, most researchers work on huge long time scales, which isn't relevant to, a, to, to an organization. So that's right. the, the overall concept of it anyway. Yeah, and another big factor is capacity building and also knowledge sharing. It's not just one way flow. It's um, as re researchers, there's this mentality that we're teaching the community builds about certain aspects or certain knowledge but that's not true it's 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 very reciprocal relationship i think that's really important and also building trust with the community members is also really important a lot of researchers 
before, and it's still practiced this way too, depending on the type of research you do, but a lot of it is very extractive and I don't know if that's a word. It's, it's extracting a lot of the information, but it's um, the information doesn't go back. So a lot of the knowledge is kept in the academic vault and that's what um, we're trying to push against that. I mean, yes, like we obviously want to produce papers and get it pu- published in the academic realm, but we also want to produce um, knowledge that is more digestible to the community and how does this impact the community and it's it's kind of best of the both worlds and and um, yeah I, I, I love research but I really love it when research becomes very practical for the community mem- members. So Ramona, in working with students and communities, how important do you think this approach is? I think it it would be more effective in getting people to know about what you're doing as opposed to the kind of research that I did for the PhD. That was, uh, like Anna mentioned, it was uh, more about the academic side of it and getting it published and that sort of a thing. But the approach that Andrew is mentioning, I feel um, that is more value creating, that that uh, you're spending your time and effort in making the community get some value about what you're doing, rather than just having a, um, it all published in a book, and it's going to be in a library and and just maybe a few students are going to read it, kind of a thing. So that's what I feel. You had a diagram, which we can't see in the audio world, but it showed three different ways you collected information. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? There are various ways that we collected information. So it's qualitative research methods and um and also ethnographic research methods as well, uh, which means that ethnographic research method is that I, as a, the researcher, embed myself in the community. Um, so even though I'm an SFU employee, I'm actually going into uh, 411, uh, try to go in there every day when I'm not, um, and really embed myself in the community. Um, getting to know the community members, getting to know the program staff and the, um, and the volunteers and really building that relationship. Um, I wouldn't have gotten any of this, any of the information that I have and any of the knowledge that I have without not being there. If I was just uh, working at SFU and just going into 411 uh, once in a while, I wouldn't have this in very rich um, source of information. Um, also learning so much from um, a lot of the community members uh, as well. I wouldn't have gotten that either. And, you know, um, I really enjoy going in and listening to people's stories about how they came to Canada um, or how, what are some of the, how their day is going. And, you know, by daily interactions, you get to know the person's daily life and you get to kind of, get information on um, some of their struggles. Um, and I think sharing and sharing that information and not um, is 
or sharing your story with other people is often helpful too for the individual because um, they share it with other people and they're like, oh, I'm also experiencing that or for them to share something. And I tell them like, yeah, I also like um, struggled with the vaccine, like the gate, the health gateway app. And I know, and, and they're always, they're really happy to hear it's not just me and it's not because I'm old and like you're young and you know how you're like digital savvy and I'm like I'm like yeah I I also don't find it user-friendly and I think those are things that you know lets people know that it's not um uh yeah lets people know that it's not just an aging issue you know and um to get out of that ageist attitude and like I think I've wholesome like um there's an implicit bias that I carry about aging and um and I'm a young person so I don't know what it's like to walk in older person's shoes and but I think being there I've I've learned a lot and um I'm continue I'm constantly learning but I think my mindset has really shifted on um I'm like, oh yeah, I shouldn't um, think that way. Or, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm less ageist. Um, I'm, I'm working towards uh, being a better advocate for seniors. And yeah, I think it's just an ongoing process for me. I think sure. you mentioned the word capacity building. And I know an experience that I've had and that other people have had, uh, there's the time when you ask someone, uh, about something on their phone and they take your phone or the worse, they take your mouse. <laughs> I had an experience with, uh, I was taking a course. I went back to school at 65. I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And this person was showing me editing and he took my mouse. And the second time he did it, I slapped his head. I mean, I thought, oh my God. <laughs> but it's just, it's very insulting. And so I noticed and observed the way that you were working with people. It was very much uh, respect for their person. Uh, the capacity is the capacity to use a device. One of the things that you are talking about when um, you mean capacity building. I think it's really I also have the tendency to grab someone's phone and, and I'm like, oh, let me just do it, you know? And, but that's not capacity building, right? Um, it's showing how to step-by-step process this. And I think a lot of people are maybe impatient teaching someone something. And, and I've, I'm always reminded, like I do this with my own parents. Um, <laughs> when we used, when I, when we used to be in the same city, uh, they're located in Winnipeg. And uh, yeah, before that I was like, Oh, just do it. But, um, but then that's not helpful to them because then they often, now they have to rely on me constantly. They're like, how do you do it? How do I do this? How do I do this? Instead of me taking the time to show them. And I think working at four on one has really taught me a value of just be patient. And I, I think you also have more patience for non-family members. <laughs> um, but just teaching them, um, and I try to be mindful of like, I won't take your phone, like here's your phone and kind of walking them through. Um, some people prefer, they're like, you just do it for me because I'm never gonna use this. Um, there's also that kind of mindset too, but I, I try to walk people through when they want to learn something. But um, 
but it's one of those things like it has to be repetition with anything you do you have to constantly do it over and over and over and I think a lot of uh, classes or programs that are offered uh, it's it's not it's not frequent enough that it kind of sticks to uh, sticks with you how did you go about designing this particular study Maybe I can um, answer that one, is that um, it is a very open-ended um, approach that we, we've got, and we work it from the ground up. Basically, um, um, Hannah was hired to be the embedded researcher, and, uh, and basically we, we had a set of objectives that we wanted to do, which was firstly to um, look at the the needs of um, older adults and, um, and, and in British Columbia, in Vancouver, in respect to technology and uh, issues around the digital divide. So trying to understand that from, uh, from Hannah's perspective, being uh, on, on the ground in uh, Seniors 411, uh, but also to provide um, uh, information to seniors, to, to seniors 411 about where they go as a as a senior center in the future. So, uh, so it, it you know it will be moving to new premises, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, there's a big interest in how seniors 411 can continue to provide help and support for um, uh, for the implementation of technology and addressing the digital divide. So maybe um, kind of providing strategic information uh, uh, as well. So, we, and we also have an academic agenda, and this is maybe, um, I can speak to that a bit more, is that, for example, the issues that, that Hannah has mentioned about adaptation and the use of technology as we get older, understanding that is really valuable and, uh, and capturing that and publishing it at an academic level in the in the Arctic, in the journals and et cetera, et cetera, is, is, is as important as the community-based thing. So we've got these different strands going on and each one of those requires different methods. So we, we, we couldn't do this top-down approach and say, well, we want to do X, Y, and Z, we will do it this way. We really have to build it uh, from the ground up and that's what we're in the process of doing right now. And uh, we, it, as long as we have a uh, relationship with Seniors Forum One, it will continue to evolve. There were um, there were three different ways that you. I think you talked with some people on the phone. There were some people that were sent a survey, and then there were people that came in during a week where you had boxes set up and stickers. Tell us about the boxes and stickers. Yeah, I took this as an undergrad. I took a, a community, uh, community-based research methods, and we were. I really. I don't like boring surveys. <laughs> Nobody wants to just read and circle, uh, which we actually did do that. <laughs> but we wanted to, um, 4 on one Senior Center was having a welcome back week um, after being closed for so long because of the pandemic. Um, so we, there was a week of a 
various different uh, programs and sessions. And, and so Sarah, myself, and Andrew uh, thought this would be a great opportunity to introduce people to the STAR Institute um, and what community-based research is and, and myself and like, why, I'm, why, why am I here? <laughs> um, so um, we had a little in the boardroom, we decided to let people know what community-based research is, to talk about the STAR Institute and my role. And, um, and we had, and I, I like to do very interactive ways to collect information. So to me, like, I like, I like seeing things, uh, rather than like, I, I like visualization and so I, I thought, let's do vote by sticker. And there are some drawbacks to vote by sticker. There are some, oh, um, but to me, uh, that was a very engaging way to get people uh, to participate in a, in a survey. And it was a very rapid assessment of um, where a lot of the barriers and challenges are with uh, specific to the BC vaccine card and um and based on that we were able to uh gather and find uh, major themes um which was great um we had a great turnout um i think uh people really like that uh interactive aspect um it's great to engage people and not just have people read a piece of paper and circle things next time i would do differently is buy bigger stickers <laughs> Well, Leslie, I know you've been involved with uh, all of us get these stickers to vote on different things for Vancouver or give our opinions of things. What do you think about that approach as compared with the uh, fill out a form and email it back in? Yeah, it sounds like kind of fun. And I can see how it would engage people. Um, as an ESL teacher, um, lots of my methods used a lot of sort of physical interaction, visual interaction. And I think it would be very good actually for people that don't speak English as a first language as well, that visual component. And then for counting, I know sometimes people like things, you know, to be all every question standard in the same way because it's easier for counting. But how did you find what, how simple was it for you to uh, compare the results from things that were answered by sticker? Uh, the data collection aspect uh, wasn't too difficult of a process. Uh, I just could <laughs> use good old fashioned Excel <laughs> um, and I just counted, but and <clears throat> yeah, it wasn't um, what's nice about vote by sticker is that it was it's very easy to get um it's a very quick assessment and it's very easy to uh, gather data whereas uh surveys um because the survey wasn't online and we did um in-person surveys so that made it a bit more tricky but yeah i um <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's about it. I don't know if Andrew, you have anything more to add. Yeah, I, I, uh, research methods, um, not to get into the technicalities of it, is that it's horses for courses. You know, you 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 use the method that is appropriate to the uh, information that you want to get out. So I've I've done research which is highly quantitative in my in my time. 
right? Um, I've done surveys, very large surveys, et cetera, et cetera, um, using different methods, whether it's telephoning people or Zooming people or um, getting them to fill online things. So, so where, what we're trying to do right now with, uh, with the work that, that Hannah's involved in is, is trying to articulate particularly the problems that people are encountering as they, as they emerge. And that requires a very, a, a very quick turnaround. So for example, with the, with the uh, vaccine passport project, we basically said that, well, we've got to do this project in about three weeks, right? So compare that with the, the typical research model, which is probably three years for, to, to do something like that. It's, it's just a completely different thing. So you, one has to be very pragmatic about it. And when, you, when, when you're feeding back the results, we, you, you have to be aware of the limitations of the research, particularly when you're talking about academic journals and stuff like that, in, you, you know, but, but, um, but it, 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 whatever is appropriate within the circumstances that you're doing the research and the type of information that you want to, want to get out of it will shape how you do it. You know, if we were doing a project on nuclear physics, we wouldn't be speaking to too many people, right? Um, but if we're talking about how people have experienced problems of using the vaccine passport, obviously, we need to speak to people. We need to understand exactly what those problems are, and and hear it from the ground, the the, the ground up. And that's the great thing about Hannah being physically and virtually in the four one one space. She can hear things as they emerge, and that's why we did the four one the vaccine passport project. Um, we're hearing things about, you know, people increasingly as they're getting older involved in the, the gig economy, for example, yes. you know, and we're hearing stories about, well, taxi drivers have now got to become Uber drivers, right? And if you're going to be an Uber driver, you need to be able to use the, um, the, the, the smartphone technology in a, in a way that people might not be used to. So these are things that we're hearing and we say, well, these are important to real people. What do we need to do from a research perspective to, uh, to provide useful information to people? Yeah, I, I wanna make a, a comment that's analogous to what you said about the Uber driver having to use the different technology to what has happened with a lot of seniors who've been asked to give their consultation on other things. It drives me up the wall because uh, it's like saying, go to the green door, paint a red circle on it, open the red circle, drop it down into an envelope, read it, and then give us your comments. I mean, and, and there are some things where they've asked for a consultative process. A lot of people have been learning Zoom. Our senior senior, the 411 Senior Center, as well as the other senior centers have had ways that they've taught people how to use Zoom. We've had some of our podcasters teach other people, again, with a similar device, a phone, a laptop, or computer. They used a platform that no one had used before. And so you had to download this platform into the computer. A lot of seniors have got two gigs 
gigabytes of, of, of data. So they get very worried about if you have to download something that's going to use data. And then aside from downloading it, people don't have printers. I think the people that assume that you could just download something to a survey to read it uh, don't realize, well, if the person doesn't have a printer or if the printer's out of paper or if they're, you know, so that's another barrier. And then <laughs> to go back into a different system and give, you know, vote from how likely are you from a scale of one to five to do X, Y, and Z. So knowing that the turnout for some surveys have been less than was anticipated, I think it's this complexity. So I like the idea that you built into your design that someone would be on the ground. Yeah, that, they say for everything, boots on the ground. <laughs> do you have boots, Adam? <laughs> Feet on the ground. Uh, talking with people, observing, making relationships. And then you call some people and you use the lose letter. You use each one of the communication methods that the 401 Senior Center already had in place to contact. Imagine in a three-week period, 500, it was 519 people. It was 514, but it wasn't me that did all the calling. I think I did about like between 30 to 40 calls, but majority of that was senior volunteers that made the phone calls. And a lot of them, are, the main priority was that the, the phone call was made. Um, the primary reason why there, we did the phone call was to make sure that the community members were aware of the vaccine card, did have the vaccine card, and if not, how can we help them get the vaccine card? And uh, it was just another step, easy to say like, um, do you have a paper format or do you have a digital format? Which let us know um, quickly uh, what kind of, what people preferred or if they didn't have a digital format, then why, why not kind of. Um, but majority of the phone calls were done by the amazing senior volunteers. Um, and yeah, like most, we found that the majority of the seniors we reached out to did have their vaccine card um, and they obtained it. Uh, they obtained a physical copy, um, which they all have complained that it's not very, um, it's not a long-term solution and um, that the fact that it was a piece of paper was really baffling and it's kind of the government really dropped the ball on that. Um, um, why was it, why couldn't they laminate it? And then that fell on a lot of the local communities to step up and uh, resize it and laminate it so it becomes more permanent um, so solution, I'll say that in quotations. Um, and now um, we're moving on to the federal uh, vaccine. And now you have to go through the, the Health Gateway app, um, <clears throat> which I, I've been avoiding, but it's inevitable. So we all have to do it. But I, I believe that you could call and get, uh, get one as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a piece of paper again. But how is that... Uh, um, why aren't people listening? <laughs> people meaning uh, the decision makers. Um, I don't know why they think that piece of paper is enough. Um, it gets wet. Uh, the QR codes could get um, worn out. Uh, why does why does that getting the lamination? Why does that fall on the individual? Um, 
sometimes you have to go to, I know that a lot of seniors have gone to staples and gotten it professionally done, but that costs money. Uh, why does that fall on the individual? You know, and, and I know that a lot of uh, MLA, local MLA offices and some uh, smaller community, uh, community-based organizations are doing it for their community members for free, but um, why is the government relying on underfunded, under-resourced <laughs> small community organizations? It's very frustrating. Can I, can I make a comment about that? Because yes. I, think, I think there's two elements to it. Firstly, that, um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be particularly critical of the BC government or any, any other provincial government around Canada, is that they've, they've had to deal with an unprecedented situation. However, I think things could have been done in a more proactive way to anticipate some of the issues uh, around around this. Um, and you, you know, I totally agree, Hannah, that that there are practical things which which they could have done. And to be honest, probably there's a cost element in this. You know that it's easier and more uh, l- less costly to the government just to say, okay, yeah, we'll just do this online primarily, and uh, you can print it out at home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the, there's probably that thinking behind it. But equally, there is now a kind of an assumption that everybody has smartphones; they're going to use that. That's the main way that people are going to use a vaccine passport, and the world, unfortunately. Well, I, I say, unfortunately, is moving in that direction. And I think I, I mentioned to various people the other day, I went to see the Vancouver Whitecaps football soccer team the other day and I bought a ticket and then found out I can only use that ticket with a smartphone. You cannot yes. use it any other way. A lot of people. So, so there are people now who are excluded from going to the Vancouver Whitecaps to watch, watch soccer games. Right. Because there's an assumption that everybody's got a smartphone. So it, so it, the, the world moves in this kind of way forward with things interacting in the in in the way we use technology. And unfortunately, certain people are going to get left behind by that. And that's what we have to really address uh, if we're going to have. Uh, avoid this digital divide and technology is always moving so everybody somebody somebody sooner or later is going to get left behind by it yeah it's not only uh people that get left behind because they don't understand the technology or they can't afford it but i actually resent the fact that Um, I feel as if I'm being forced to get a smartphone and I don't want one. I've got a little flip phone, which is fine. It's cheap. I don't have to pay for data, you know, and yet I can't, uh, I can't put the, uh, I can't put any access cards or any ID or anything up on the screen. And some people mentioned that at the seniors day, you know, that they resent the idea that you have to have uh, that particular type of technology in order to access things as simple as being able to go to a movie or a restaurant or a game. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, even our younger generations are talking about, you know, it's just a lot to juggle. Like, um, why, why couldn't it be a physical card? You know, um, even it's not just, it's not just older 
folks that are saying that it's also you know younger people like younger generations that are also saying yes there's there's some people that do everything digitally but there are also other people that want tangible physical card um kind of like when you're showing your piece of id it's easy to just have all your card not hold your phone and the card and you have to look for your qr code and you know it's um it's become a very i don't know how long we have to continue doing this um i think um I've, I was when I was on the radio, uh, someone said this was only supposed to be a temporary solution, uh, but um, I don't think it is. Um, I think I think it's maybe it is temporary, but what is temporary? How long is it going to be? And the question is how what's a lot of seniors have expressed what's next? Um, that constant fear and anxiety of like, OK, so there's the provincial and now there's going to be a federal doesn't mean that the provincial is that the provincial card is going to get phased out and taken over by the federal. There's all these questions, but no one's really addressing the answers. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a bit of a chaos. And Andrew's right. Like, I do agree that, you know, it's unprecedented time and, you know, and the government is also uh, probably going, um, they're just adapting as quickly as they can. And, um, but I think, you know, moving forward, it's, it's been now, you know, moving forward, we will have better, um, better ways. Who knows? I don't, I don't have answers. <laughs> Well, I think one of the things that is very, very valuable for feeding back to the government is your study. And right in the time period where uh, another the mandate is coming out to have the federal ID. So having that data might help people who are working on um, approaches to getting it to people using something more community based to know that just what they had making it a mandate is not enough. I think the speed of that information. Do you know? With aside from the press releases about your study, have any copies of it been sent to uh, any elements of the of the government that deals with uh, these cards or, or mandates? I can speak to that. Uh, is, is that we, we as a pro as a project, the relationship we have with four one one, we're still developing our communications channels. So um, so for example, um, Hannah. A couple of weeks ago, spent most of the week uh, being interviewed by by the uh, press um, and news outlets, etc., about uh, about uh, the research that was done. Uh, we we are sending the information to as many um, decision makers as possible. So, um, but a key element of the work that we're doing is this outreach and communication, so that people who are making decisions about these things are getting that feedback as well. Yeah, I think that's important. We've had podcasts where seniors have wanted to know more about the advocacy role, advocacy regarding transportation, accessibility, residential care. So I think this is another area that as we show people who, Whose desk does that fall on? <laughs> That's the question. Whose portfolio is that? Who's the person that we, you know, 
use our flip phones or whatever phones we have to call them up and say, listen, we'd like for you to look at some of the results, some of the solutions that were indicated. What were those seven? I think there were seven main pointers or, or issues that, that your research focused on that people would want to have paid attention to. So the seven emerging themes that came out of the focus group discussion that we had, um, <clears throat> just to the digital divide, um, there was overload um, language barrier. That was the biggest one as well. Um, not everyone speaks English or, or French. And um, um, that was, um, there's, you know, Canada, BC is very diverse. Um, and pop population. Um, I know that COVID-19, uh, uh, the 183, the government number does provide um, inclusive language, which is great, but um, there's certain, not all community, local communities have the capacity to uh, um, have provide different language services. Um, privacy and security is a, another big factor. Not everyone knows what a QR code is and, and what the business, uh, the person that's scanning your QR code, what information do they see? So there was a lack of um, information about that. Um, and um, also the Health Gateway app, it came out at the same, same time. Um, so people were really concerned about with the Health Gateway app, if I went through that channel to get my vaccine passport, what information are they seeing? Because the Health Gateway app stores all your medical information, like all your medical appointments and uh, your what type of drugs uh, you've prescribed to. And um, a lot of people were worried, like, do they see that information? So that wasn't very clear. Um, there was a lot of anxiety and fear around what's next, what's going to happen. Um, also asking for help could be also very daunting. Um, and there was a lot of, um, another theme that we picked up on was complex terminologies. So there was a lot of technical jargons that were being thrown around. And we still use um, the word between vaccine card, vaccine passport. Um, like what if it's, we use it interchangeably, but like, um, that also confused people because some people had the vaccine. When people talk about a card, they were the, they were pulling out their vaccine um, card that they had received when they got their vac uh, their Pfizer or Moderna the vaccination. So that with the date and the lot number, like people were showing that. But that's you know all these terms are just getting very confusing and. Um, and also, like, why passport? Like, who created that? <laughs> Did media take that? And just, you know, um, I've I've done some research on. Um, I've typed in back BC vaccine passport the government doesn't even use that language so where did the passport <laughs> come from so that's just become very interesting um, and that's those are the major themes that we've uh, the group um, have identified. And then based on that, um, we came up with um, the, uh, the survey questions and, um, and the major findings. And based on that as well, we were able to 
put together the recommendations. So um, I was going to ask one of the questions we had for today is if you had a seat at the table when people were making decisions about policy, such as the vaccine card, what would you say? What would you say, Ramona, if you had a table, a seat at the table uh, when they're developing this policy? Okay, Charlotte, that's that's quite a question. I I don't understand um, the the extent to which the the vaccine card or passport, whatever they're calling it, what what is the extent of the the information which they are disclosing? Because for me. I don't have any such, uh, I don't even have a health card as of now because of my status here. And so I'm not affected by that. But even if you did have this uh, kind of, uh, I'm thinking of it in a positive way that if you if you need to be, like you are in a particular location, for example, and then you you have your family doctor and your records or whatever. And so if you suffer from some kind of health issue, then you could be deal, dealt with in a proper way. What if you relocated somewhere else and that information was required immediately for what, some kind of emergency? And we know that as seniors, that we might be, you know, having... Um, need of such kind of services suddenly. So then I feel that having this kind of information at a glance is a positive thing that uh, the medical authorities would be able to access everything about you if that is what they're saying, the passport gives you an insight into, then I don't think it should be considered in a negative way at all. I mean, what kind of use negatively could someone make by knowing your medical issues and the kind of medication that you're on? How could they misuse that information? If you're thinking of identity theft, <laughs> then no one wants to do that, right? No one wants to take on somebody else's <laughs> health issues and the medicines they use. And so I, I really feel that there's no point in making a very big issue of this. And I feel that, yes, you have this passport and it's useful in various ways. If you're thinking of travel, then you would be not only safer, but also ensuring the safety of other passengers. When you have this passport at a glance, the authorities could uh, you know, allow you to travel or not. And the same goes for entry into various establishments or restaurants which are now opening up. So I think it's a good thing to have these passports. That is my opinion. Did you have a comment about what can be seen, Andrew? That's a question a lot of people have, is what what can people see? Yeah, I can uh, respond to what Ramona's just mentioned there, is that, uh, you know, people, when they're, presented with something new and especially if they're if if it's something to do with their own personal information and health information is very private for 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 people is that people do get anxious irrespective of whether 
the particular app is presenting information uh, uh, that is not, not very personal, to be honest. You know, so when 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 the QR is code is scanned, it just basically comes up that yeah, you've been vaccinated, right? Um, it's not coming up with the details that are on the say the Health Gateway app, which uh, which Hannah mentioned. However, people people. Uh, understanding of that can be, you know, kind of limited. Um, I've, I've done a lot of research in um, of people's understanding of technologies, and you know, even very simple technologies can be understood in very many different ways, and people's insights into them can be uh, quite quite different. So we shouldn't underestimate that people. Uh, people's anxieties around the technologies and that these are the these are um, you know if people are uncomfortable with it whatever the reason then we've got to take that that seriously and um and i think that communication uh and explaining it to people in clear ways hasn't been done right certainly not by uh, by this government and it's sort of the thing that seniors 411 has been involved in and that's the sort of thing which hannah alluded to that it's seniors organizations families and friends etc who've been picking up the pieces around this while at the same time people have been very anxious about it about you, you, you know so that's where i'm saying that things could have been handled better so we have information that can help people that they don't have to wait three years for the book to be <laughs> be presented, that this study is available. It's available through the Stark. How do people get in touch with, with, with Star? Well, you can easily uh, just Google Star, Star Institute SFU. You will find lots of things on there which are of value, you know, because most of our work is, um, is community oriented. We put a lot of stuff out, which is meant to be read by a wide audience. Uh, we're increasingly up, you know, developing our community outreach stuff as well. So you can access stuff by, um, by Googling, um, you know, you have to be able to do that uh, in order to find out Star Institute stuff uh, at SFU. But equally, uh, there's things, in, information is available via 411 as well, either in person, physically or uh, or via the 411 website. I just posted the uh, in the chat the Star Institute website and then the second link is uh, directly will take you to the study or evaluation study but also if you would like a physical copy please come see me at 411 I I have I'm able to provide a physical copy of that report as well. Um, yeah, if you have any questions or if you want to share any information with me, um, if you want to vent, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. I, I, I love listening <laughs> to people. Um, so yeah, if you um, please feel free to reach out to me uh, for, um, I'm always at 411. Um, I will also put down my contact information in the chat. Um, I'm not sure how that gets shared, but I will put it in there in case people want to reach out. Um, also, put, I will also share my cell phone number. I know some people prefer to 
to talk on the phone rather than uh, send emails. So I'm available at all at all channels. <laughs> okay, and, and then the 411 Senior Center Society is the formal name of 411. If you just dial basic 411, you'll get the main information, but it's the 411 Senior Center Society. And it's located at 333 Terminal Avenue. Uh, you can call there and you can make an appointment to to uh, to come in. There are some drop-in hours for using the computer. They do have computers available for people uh, who don't have a computer at home. And the information and uh, resource center in at the 411 Senior Center serves seniors across the country and you know within our province, having a, a focus for the province of, of uh, British Columbia. People, who, if you're having difficulty with immigration papers, learning how to get uh, get your documents together for the income tax, how to access housing services, all those are things that are free services that you can get by dropping in at the 411 Senior Center or phoning us. And right at that point, I'm embarrassed to say I don't have the phone number in, in my memory, but uh, when you ask Google, phone the 411 Senior Center Society, it will locate the number or it will, if you have a smartphone, it'll call them. But uh, in the notes, when we have our podcast notes, uh, this information will be in the notes when you look at our podcast on any of the centers, places where it's found, uh, poweredbyage.com, Spotify, iTunes, and even YouTube. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for seeing ways that you could have your say. You see that there is a research institute that is there, not parachuting in <laughs> to find out what you're doing, but reaching out and even putting people boots on the ground in the center to not just find out the answers they want, but to find out how technology is affecting seniors, what's on people's wish lists, and what can really make this an age-friendly not only an age-friendly city, but an age-friendly world for older people and intergenerationally throughout all the generations. Because someone said, if you make a world that's good for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds, it will serve everyone. So that is part of the mandate for our program. So I'll see you again next week at one. Bye.